I remember when I was younger, getting into a conversation with another Christian, younger gal, uh, who probably was around 20, I might have been like 22, <clears throat> about whether or not Christians should drink alcohol or not. The conversation was long, it was drawn out, we both knew, we both knew that getting drunk was a sin according to the Bible, very clear in the book of Ephesians. We both knew too that the Bible never says that a Christian cannot drink. She just thought that Christians should not drink because they did not need to. And she seemed determined not only to hold that opinion for herself, but to convince me and the friends that we were with of the same. Now, I didn't know what kind of background she came from, but I came from a background that smelled like legalism. The wrong belief that follow the wrong belief that said that if you follow rules, well, then that makes you a Christian. Or if you follow rules, that somehow gets you in good with God. So you can imagine me with that former background going into that conversation, right? I wasn't going to let anybody, you know, place upon me more burdens and rules that I came from. And so I kind of instigated this long and drawn out conversation. Unfortunately, looking back at that conversation with that gal who was just trying to love Jesus... She was a gentle and a sweet girl. Looking back at that conversation with that gal, I can say that I was more determined to prove myself right. More determined to make sure that my rights were preserved than being determined to be loving, being determined to build up my younger Christian sister, even if that just meant being quiet. Now, I know that in talking to some of you guys after last week's sermon, I know that some of you can say the same. You've had those same types of conversations where maybe you sought to prove yourself right or prove your own convictions and opinions right according to the Bible more than you were determined to be loving and to build up other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Well, for those of us who have been in this situation before or who might find ourselves in such a situation in the future that is disagreeing with another Christian about what it looks like to follow Jesus on issues that are sort of peripheral, that's going to be all of us, right? For those of us who have been in that situation or who will be, our pastors today offer some excellent Christian life advice. Excellent Christian life advice. What is that advice? It is simple. It is straightforward. It is right to the point. If you're taking notes, this is my main point. Our passage today says, don't cause your brother to stumble, but pursue mutual upbuilding. Don't cause your brother to stumble, but pursue mutual upbuilding. Today our passage is found in Romans chapter 14. We are in verses 13 to 23. Verses 13 to 23 of Romans chapter 14. If you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you, you can be found on page 949. 949. We continue through the book of Romans, a letter written by Paul the Apostle in the mid-50s A.D., writing, as he wrote, to the church in Rome. And in this letter, Paul writes explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, you know, we could just broadly summarize to be found in chapters 1 to 11. And then in the second section, chapters 12 to 16, he teases out some applications for the church, particularly in relation to love. Particularly in the, in the aspect of love, that is Christian love, towards fellow Christians. In chapter 13, we are taught that love is a fulfillment of all of the law of God. And this is just an echo of Jesus' teaching, who himself said that the law of God hangs on these two commands, that is loving God and loving one another. Now, of course, if you're, if you're investing, investigating Christianity and you hear, well, gosh, this is so simple to be a Christian. You love God and love one another. Let me just remind us all here that when it says loving God here, we're talking about loving God the way that he himself defines himself, right? Who this God is, as he's defined himself according to the word. And then also what it looks like to love God according to what he says, it calls and commands. And then when, we, when it comes to loving one another, well, it's loving one another as God himself commands us to love others. So this love, right, it just starts with him 
and not us. It starts with him and not us. And Paul wants us to sort of put our backs, if you are a Christian, he wants us to put our backs behind loving our fellow church members for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, on one hand, loving our fellow church member, it just sounds so easy, doesn't it? On one hand, right? Love one another. But then if you know someone long enough, if you live with another person in close enough quarters or work with another person, then you know how hard it is to love others, even for Christians who have the very spirit of Jesus inside of them. For one, right, we still sin against each other, so sin can potentially divide the church if we let it, if we allow it. And Paul elsewhere deals with the idea of forgiving one another as Christ himself has forgiven us. But sin's not the only thing that threatens to divide the church. Sadly, so can matters of opinion, which is what we're looking at today. Matters of opinion, right? What one Christian thinks is best to do as they strive to live a life after Christ. You can imagine, right, if we're holding on to those things with our death grip or imposing them upon other people, well, then all of a sudden things are going to get very difficult. Things such as, I think faithfulness to Jesus means never drinking alcohol or never getting tattoos, or never sending my children to public school, or never working in this type of career, and on and on and on. Those are matters of opinion. Those are indifferent matters. As we talked about last week, that is things that God doesn't specifically address in His Word, or things where clear implications cannot be drawn from biblical passages. Those are indifferent matters. You can imagine the potential for division, for something silly almost in the big picture. I know we might hold these things to be very dear to our hearts, but you can imagine, right, if this church were, you know, on one side, you had those who said, we can only send our children to this type of school. And you held that with your own death grip. You know, that's the mark of Christian faithfulness. And then this side, they just so happen to disagree. Well, you can see that soon enough, those things that we might hold so dear to our hearts, we could potentially make them the definition of what it means to be a Christian. And then church splits can happen, and eventually maybe even the gospel can be lost. Well, this this idea of division over opinions is what was going on in the church of Rome. And the issue had to do with what they ate. The issue had to do with what they ate. Some of the Jewish Christians in the church thought that God still wanted them to obey the Old Testament, the Jewish food laws, as a mark of a true follower of God. Right? That's what it looks like, looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. We're not talking about be saved. So no one is saying, like, hey, we need to eat certain foods or not eat certain foods in order to be saved. That's not what was going on in Rome, the church in Rome. We're talking about just what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. And then Romans 14 calls these folks weak in faith. If we think the only way that we can be faithful to Jesus is to abstain from certain foods, Paul calls them the weak in faith. They are weak in this point of following Jesus. This means that their conscience tells them that to follow Jesus means adding certain commands. Again, not for salvation, but what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. So that was one group. The other group was the Gentile Christians, that is the non-Jews. And these two groups, right, they're just trying to get along together. They're just trying to do church together. The Gentile Christians, well, they didn't follow the Old Testament as part of their culture. They followed whatever God that they, God that they wanted prior to becoming Christians. They weren't governed by the Old Testament food laws. So, right, why are they going to listen to these Jewish food laws? And they've known Christ, it seems that they, they knew Christ's teaching that all foods were declared clean, They were free, therefore, to eat anything. They were the strong in faith concerning these particular issues. So how exactly are they going to get along in the church? How are they going to fellowship with one another? When they eat a fellowship meal together, should they only be eating certain kinds of meat? Should should one group take offense and the other uh, sort of judge the other side in pride and you know, should the weak Christian be forced to go against their conscience, right? How do we learn to love one another for Christ's sake, even in matters of opinion? And this question very much is for us today as well. Let me continue with the background. Then we're going to read this passage. In the beginning of chapter 14, go ahead and look there. At the beginning of chapter 14, you can skim it. Paul tells the Christians to welcome one another. Don't judge one another. Why is it? Well, welcome others because God himself has welcomed others. 
They are now our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our spiritual family. And most of all, right, stop judging one another because God himself is judge, not us. And these are encouragements to both sides, the weak and the strong. But this week, in our passage, Paul takes time to address the strong, how they can love their weaker brother and sisters in the faith. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. I'll go ahead and read that. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." We're going to take our main point and just divide it into two, and those will be the points of our sermon. So point number one, don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't cause your brother to stumble. We see that as the command there in verse 13. Look there. Therefore, let us not pass judgment. He had just been talking about judgment in the previous passage. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This language, if you're wondering, this language about stumbling block refers to something that simply harms or hurts another Christian's faith. Something that harms or hurts another Christian's faith, a fellow church member's faith. And there is a play on words here in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, that's not clear in our English translations, but it's worth mentioning. You see that word there, past judgment? And then another word there, decide, past judgment, and then decide. Those words actually share the exact same root word. So he himself is sort of putting an exclamation mark on, on what he's saying here by using this play on words. It is as if he is saying something like, <clears throat> stop rendering decisions or passing judgment. You know, you think of, of both sides are judging each other for what they do or don't do. He says, look, stop rendering decisions about your brother's faith. If you're you're going to decide anything, if you're going to decide anything, decide to never hurt your brother's faith. That's that's that play on words there that he's putting an exclamation, that he's using to put an exclamation mark on what he's saying there. That's the decision or judgment that should be made by the strong Christian. They should determine to protect the weaker's faith. Clearly, the ones who are being addressed, the ones who are asked to bear the responsibility of protecting are the strong. So if you can imagine, right, if you know there are folks here who are maybe worried about their faith, they're concerned, you know, maybe have I lost my salvation? Have I not lost my salvation? Or what exactly do I need to do to please God in such a way that torments them in an unhelpful way? Maybe those we could consider the weak, sort of on one side of the spectrum. And then the other side of the spectrum is just those who are probably looking over there and they're like, what's wrong with you? We're free in Jesus. We do whatever we want to. Just love Jesus and live our lives. Okay, if you're more than love Jesus and live our lives, you're probably more like the strong and your temptation is to judge the weaker and to despise them, as it says there in verse 14, or to judge them, think like, man, you're so stiff and uptight. And the weaker there will be looking over there at the loose Christians who, who are free to do anything. And, you know, they're just thinking like, man, you're, you're kind of like all over the place. I'm kind of worried about your soul because what you're doing seems kind of risky. Uh, those would be like the weak. Okay, so if you are the strong if you know yourself to be the strong or identifying yourself in that category, right? He's talking to you here. And, and let's just admit that at some point in time, we are all probably going to be in the strong or on the weak on some things. That's just natural. It's, not, it's normal. Um, nowadays, I 
might consider myself in the strong, but definitely there was that one point in time where I thought like, you know, slapping an exhaust on my car was, was near sinful. Well, why is that? It's because all of my friends, you know, that's just what we did. And I associated those things with going really fast on the freeway and getting a lot of tickets, 10 tickets to be precise from the ages of 16 to 25. And my license was suspended. My insurance was out high. Right. So, so doing those things just in my mind made me associate it with bad things. And so me personally, I was the weak. Right. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. It also happened with rap music. I listened to a lot of gangster rap from the ages of 12 to, I don't remember when, maybe 20. Um, and then I really started growing in my faith. And then, and then even listening to Christian rap, like beats, certain types of beats, just brought back so much aggression, the aggression that I had previously. Right In those moments, I was like, oh, I should stay away. I don't really know. Right? Th- then I was the weak, and who knows? I'll probably be weak on some things, strong on other things. Anyways, this is all of us, basically. What's interesting is what he doesn't say to the weak. He does not rebuke the weak in a straightforward manner. That's interesting. That's instructive here. You got, you got Paul the Apostle, this shepherd, this great shepherd who trained other shepherds. And he's, he is not sort of slapping them in the face saying, get on board with it, ASAP. He doesn't say that, even though he disagrees with the weak. You look there in verse 14, it says there, I know, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I mean, perhaps here Paul's just thinking of the words of Jesus in Mark 7.15. There is nothing, uh, or I believe it's like 15 to 20. I'll highlight one of those verses. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. In other words, you can eat what you want. That's not going to make you dirty. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him, things that come out of a person's heart. Now, Paul is a Jewish Christian, an expert in the Jewish law, right? He knew that the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and therefore he knew that everything was fine to eat. Now, while Paul does not rebuke the weak in the book of Romans, he does teach them. Okay, so if you're strong, wondering like, okay, I see this person's weakness, and I hear, I don't cause a brother to stumble but pursue building up one another in love. Part of that involves, right, teaching them. Right? Remember, these letters here are, are written to the whole entire church so that they would be read aloud. So you can imagine as he's writing there, verse 14, everything is clean to eat. He's, he knows that, that uh, those who think eating certain foods are dirty are going to hear this, and they're going to hear the Apostle Paul's opinion on the matter. So he's instructing them. He, and in this particular instance, he's not rebuking them. In your face, at least. If you think about it, Paul here is modeling what he wants the strong to do. He wants them to be gentle. He wants them to remember that, I think, that sanctification takes a lifetime. He wants the church to be addressing one another in love. He wants us to be focused on like the, the most important issues while teaching the weak in all patience on matters that are around the periphery. So the strong here are called to move towards the weak in love, and we're going to look at that more later. But we see that in verses 20 and 21. Go ahead and look there, right? Move towards the weak in love. 20 and 21, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, again, he, he's not talking about what we today should, like, should we go eat tacos, should we go eat Chinese food, you know, stuff like that. He's talking very much in relation to the Jewish food laws. Maybe when he talks about here um, the drink, he could be also talking about similar things that he was talking in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, you know, where there are pagan celebrations, and let's say you got, like, meat or wine that was used in those celebrations, and then they're done with it. And then they go to the market and then they go and sell those very things, right? Maybe some of the weak are like, no, you can't buy that because it was one time used in these pagan celebrations. Maybe he's referring to that here. We're not entirely clear. Regardless, he says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I remember in um, high school, college, some of my friends would be on some kind of diet, Right? I'm not going to eat junk food, this and that, for the whole entire year. And being the natural-born 
irritator that I was, and as you know, still am, I would be as obnoxious as I could about eating my junk food at lunch, right? Eating my Twinkie all slow, that sponge cake full of creamy goodness, even though it's synthetic, just just eat it real slow. Get a nice good cross-section and show it to others. Right, you can imagine how obnoxious that would have been. That's kind of maybe what the strong were tempted towards. Being sort of obnoxious towards, uh, about their freedoms towards the weak, right? The weak, turn up to, the weak turn up to dinner with the strong, and the strong are, right, they're ready to enjoy themselves. They're, they're ready to fry up some nice Spanish Iberico bacon. But then the weak have such reticence, they're wary. They feel that it dishonors God to refrain, or sorry, they feel like it honors God to refrain from eating the meat since it doesn't conform to the law that he gave us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You can imagine the obnoxious among the strong, you know, I mean, how are they going to respond? You guys are crazy. God would not reject the swine, the crispiness, the crunchiness. Just try it. All foods are okay to eat. Prove it to me. Where does it say that the Bible says that we shouldn't eat it right now in the New Testament under the New Covenant, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because all of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. You see what's going on here. The strong would be flaunting their freedom in the face of the weak. Flaunting their freedom in the face of the weak. That's one way in which they are putting a stumbling block, potentially, in front of their weaker siblings here. Flaunting their freedom in the face of the weak. So Paul tells them, don't make your brother stumble. Now perhaps, the situ- uh, perhaps to a situation that applies to us would be a brother or sister who, once again, let's just use the alcohol issue just because it's such a, it could potentially be a hot button issue and has been a hot button issue amongst Christians over the last, you know, 150 years. Um, think of that issue. You have a brother or sister who refrains from drinking alcohol because they feel like God does not want them to for various reasons. And I know people like this, Christians who refrain, maybe because they've seen what drinking alcohol in excess does to people. In their mind, they're thinking of their parents, their father. And along with the excessive alcohol drinking and the drunkenness comes violence, comes abuse, comes loss of control, comes addiction, comes throwing away everything that the family has worked towards building and hurting one another. And maybe they conclude... That for me, to honor God in the best way possible means never drinking alcohol. Oh, you see how someone might naturally come to those conclusions. And the obnoxious, even though they might not know the background of the person that's, uh, that's abstaining from alcohol, right? Why they choose to do what they do, but they respond, that's ridiculous. Just try some. And if you ain't going to drink it, great, cheers myself, double fisting beers, you know, just ridiculous things like that. That's flaunting one's freedom on the issue in the face of the weak. That's one thing Paul says about how they are to love. They're not to flaunt their freedoms in the face of the weak. They're not to make their brother stumble. He also, he also doesn't want the strong to pressure the weak to go against their conscience. He also doesn't want the strong to pressure the weak to go against their conscience. It's another way in which they are to love. Now, the word conscience here is not used in our passage, but it is used in the passage that I mentioned earlier, which seems quite similar, at least in some things. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Um, So pressuring the weak would sound like the strong just saying, just eat it anyway. Even though you're still working through the issue, even though you've chosen not to do it, God's word doesn't say so. So just do it anyway. Go against what your God-given conscience says. You know what Paul says about a person that leads another to go against their conscience? That person causes the other person to sin. That person causes the other person to sin. Talk about a stumbling block. The other person is leading them to sin against God by going against his God-given conscience. Now, that sounds awfully confusing. Like, how exactly does that work? Let's see what the Word of God says. You look there in verse 14. The second half, it says there, It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And then in verse 23, Whoever has doubts, right? This is the week. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. 
For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's saying there, if you don't think your faith in Christ allows you to do something in good conscience, in matters of opinion, and you do it anyway, he says that, friend, you are in sin. And the brother or sister who leads another person into that uh, is also in sin. But why is it sin? Why is it sin? One pastor put it this way, and I found this a really helpful explanation. He says, like, you know, if you imagine having a five-year-old if you don't have a five-year-old. If your five-year-old comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm sorry, I was playing at the neighbor's house, and I ate a piece of candy even though you said I couldn't. Okay, that's the scenario. Here's the deal. If the child's, uh, or the child's actions are still wrong, or let me put it this way. Let me ask it in a question. Uh, is the child's action still wrong if I never gave him that rule? Is the child's action wrong if I never gave him the rule, right? Child goes over to the neighbor's house, say, hey, and then it comes back and says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I ate a piece of candy even though you said I couldn't. And I say there, and I stand there and say, but I never told you, I didn't give you that rule. Is the child still wrong? Well, according to Paul, he says yes. Isn't that interesting? The child is still wrong. Why? It's because he thought, he thought his father had given him the rule. Regardless of whether I gave him the rule in the first place, his intention was to go against the father, and so therefore the intention is wrong, and his action ends up being wrong. You're looking at intentions here. He is still, in, in verses, uh, verse 23, he is still condemned because of his intention. He thinks, right? Think of the weak, having these rules. He thinks Christ does not allow him to do certain things, and so his actions do not proceed from faith. That is him just following after Jesus. He's going against what he thinks Christ wants for him. It's outside of the bounds, you know, the weak might say, that I think Christ has given me for my faith in him. Now, again, let me be clear. He's not talking about things that God says are sinful. So if you're exploring Christianity, you're like, mm, you know, should I, should I be a Christian? I'm counting the cost. I'm really trying to see, like, is it worth me giving up certain things? And you could come to verse 14, right? One could come and look there. For whoever thinks something is unclean, it is unclean. And then you're like, yes, this is awesome, right? I think sleeping around before I'm married with someone who's not my wife is okay. Because I think it is clean and therefore it is clean. That is not, not what God is talking about here. Not what Paul is talking about. Remember the context here. He's talking about matters that are of opinion. These are not matters that God has said are sinful or not sinful. These are matters of opinion. So you cannot use verse 14 and verse 23 and use it as a license to sin. But thinking about the danger of going against the conscience, continuing to think about that, you see what danger, you strong Christian, you see what danger you are putting the weaker Christian in if you're getting them to go against their conscience? It's because you would end up being that friend or that mentor or that teacher or that older sibling who teaches the little kid to go against what he thinks his father has told him. That's sin. We never want to contribute to the searing or the hardening of someone's God-given conscience. We never want to be part of teaching someone to get used to opening that door and walking down that pathway. Because for that person, what happens? It just becomes all the more and more and more natural and normal to do that. They become more and more okay with going against their God-given conscience. We talked about conscience in uh, Romans chapter 12, um, this is something that God has given us where we are able to determine that is no or have guidance as to what is right or wrong. Now, the conscience can be wrong. The conscience can be misinformed, which is why we need to inform it with the word of God. So that way it, it's, it, it actually points us towards what is good according to God's word. So we want the conscience to be taught and informed by the word of God, right? We want other Christians to think carefully and to live according to the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But this teaching should be done in love. Now, I'm guessing 
If you're the strong who flaunts your freedom in front of other people, in front of the weak, or if you're trying to convince weaker Christians to do something that they genuinely, at that particular moment, think is wrong for them, well, then you're more like the strong here that he's rebuking. You are more like the ones who despise the younger. You are more like the one, like me as I was earlier, just trying to prove myself right. You might have a judgmental heart. And you are probably someone that does not wholeheartedly embrace the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Look there at 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now again, you think about the weaker Christian. Does their conscience need to be informed? Yes. But for you as the strong, as you're having conversations with these folks, here are some, some things that I want you to ask yourself if you're in that situation, like right in that moment, right? You're about to order that, I don't know, glass of wine, and then all of a sudden you hear that someone else, like, uh, you know, really has a problem, or uh, let's say you're trying to encourage this person to drink, and then you find out that this person feels like, um, according to their conscience, they can't. Uh, here are some, some questions to ask yourself. Is now, or that particular moment, the best time to teach them is now the best time to teach them it may be it may not be another question are, are you an appropriate person to do the instructing are you an, an appropriate person to do the instructing in other words like do you have the credibility do you have their respect in other words if you yourself struggle with drunkenness and you're telling this other person Hey, you should go on and drink. Like, that probably is not going to be heard well by uh, this individual. Another one, are you governed by Christ-like love? Why does he say in 15.1 that we are to, to bear with the failings of the weak? It's because he wants the weak loved. But, you know, if you're just going to rebuke them or instruct them in the ways of your opinions, most likely you don't have Christ-like love governing your interaction. So we see what Paul's after. Those are some questions. I hope that those are useful. We see, we see what Paul's after. He doesn't want the strong to flaunt their Christian freedom in the face of the weak, nor does he want the strong to pressure the weak and teach the weak to go against their conscience as they live for the Lord. And in it all, in calling the strong to not do these things, we see Paul's underlying concern there in verse 15. Look at the underlying concern. Actually, in 15 to 19, he's sort of bringing up these um, these concepts are highlighted. Look there first in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer, what, walking in brotherly love. And why brotherly love? Why loving others as Christ loves them? Why building each other up, as it says there in verse 19, mutual upbuilding? Why those things? It's because a huge part of what living in the kingdom of God is like is about those things. Peace, enjoying the Holy Spirit, building one another up, because that's exactly what God himself is doing. It's about serving Jesus Christ and his people as one of his people, marked by his love. It's definitely not about serving ourselves. I know from my past when I have sinfully judged others in matters indifferent, once again, I'm oftentimes going after being right, or I'm dead set about claiming my rights, protecting my rights, regardless of what anyone thinks. In those moments, I have little genuine concern for the spiritual safety and security of other people. And you see the cost of this. If, you, if you've done this yourself, you see the cost there. Um, hindering others in their walk of faith in verse 13. Grieving others, right? We hurt other Christians. That's, one, that's the first cost that we're going to look at. And then it just gets worse, right? Not only is there hurting and grieving others, um, he sort of camps out on that again. In, in the, there in verse 15, we, we tear, 15, we tear down a brother or we destroy a brother. Teaching others to go against their conscience. That's the first one, right? We hurt other Christians. Teaching them to disobey God. We dishonor Christ. That's the second one, right? Not only do we hurt other Christians, we dishonor Jesus Christ. If we selfishly wield our freedoms to the detriment of fellow Christians, well, what are those who are hurt going to say about our freedoms? You see that? What is the weak going to say about our freedoms if we're bashing our freedoms on the other person's head? Unfortunately, they might consider it in their, and in their immaturity, says, determine that something is bad 
or sorry, determine something bad or evil, um, sorry, determine something that is good to be evil or bad, right? Freedoms all of a sudden gets labeled as bad because this Christian, this strong Christian was bashing me over the head with them. So we dishonor Jesus Christ. And then you see the same thing there in verse 17, right? What will people think of the kingdom of God is about? If what we are all, if what we are all about is about our freedoms, like drinking? If you are making such a big deal about what you eat or drink, then the kingdom of God must be about eating and drinking instead of the glorious things of the king, like righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing. So first, we hurt other Christians. We dishonor Jesus Christ. And then also, we destroy the work of God. We destroy the work of God. There in verse 20, if we are destroying our brothers and sisters, right, we are actually destroying the very work of God. We are tearing down what God himself is building up. Can you imagine then in our insensitivity or our, our desires to be right or our desire to protect our rights, we work against the very cause of God. We work to tear down the very ones that God intends to build up. That's the cost. Now, in my experience, I thank God I've never met anyone who is strong in the faith who has intentionally wanted to hurt other Christians or dishonor Christ or to oppose God. But I know in my own heart and knowing other people's hearts as I've spoken with them, these things can be done inadvertently or unintentionally. Given that's the case, right, this passage calls for the strong in the faith to be mindful, to be caring, to be gentle towards the weak. And it helps us cultivate a nurturing love towards our fellow church members. So that's why we see Paul not only telling us what we should not do, he also tells us what we should do. He wants us to cultivate an atmosphere of love. Point number two, he wants us to pursue mutual upbuilding. Pursue mutual upbuilding. We looked at what we should not do, now we look at what we are to do. Given the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, verse 19 says, look there, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In short, he says, let's live as the king desires us to live, live in such a way that the kingdom is seen to be what it is. It is beautiful. That the embassies of God's kingdom, as it reflects the king and his rule, you know, the church is a safe place, a nurturing place, a peaceful place. A place where everyone ideally labors to have each other's good and growth in Jesus Christ in mind to the praise of his glory. Where every one of us sets our mind on the spirit of Jesus, aiming for each other's joy in the Holy Spirit. For the rest of our time, I want to look at practical encouragements we can do to create this culture. And here I think we should take great encouragement, right? True Christians already have the spirit of Jesus in us. Our affections are already set in a certain way. God has already given us new hearts here. So what are some practical things that we can do in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, as we labor for the safety and security of others in Jesus Christ? First, remember that Christ himself secured the salvation of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Remember that Christ himself secured the salvation of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You look there at Romans 14, verse 15. He says there, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If Christ died for them, what do you think Christ's intentions are for that person? And here we should just recall all of the spiritual blessings that are ours, if you're a Christian, in Jesus Christ. Right? All those marvelous blessings that we've already looked at in the book of Romans. Christ, through his shed blood, purchased that weak Christian standing before a holy God so that that person would forever know the love of God, the peace of Jesus Christ, freedom from the tyranny of sin, freedom from the evil taskmaster that is salvation by law, as if that were possible. He has won for us the forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, life by the Spirit. A hope in the return of Jesus Christ, safety and security, no matter your earthly situation. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You think about the, the great extent that God goes to secure that weaker Christian's faith and salvation. 
The eternal Son of God crosses the universe, takes on flesh, enters into our existence, lives a perfect life, the life that we should have, dies the death that we should have because all of us have sinned against God, earned for ourselves God's just punishment. Jesus does that to secure that weaker Christian's faith, dies on the cross, bears the wrath that we deserved, stays in the grave for three days. On the third day, he rises from the dead, declaring to all, showing all that payment has been made in full and that now everyone who ever repents of their sins and believes on him can be saved. All of that is what Jesus did to secure that weaker Christian's faith. So to turn up in our freedoms, like I did with the Twinkie, to turn up on our freedom saying, the kingdom, the kingdom is about drink, and to demand that your weaker Christians submit to your opinions or your right theology, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I say that rebuking myself too. It is absolutely ridiculous in light of this great and marvelous gospel to make the kingdom of God about beer or tattoos or whatever is just silly. So perhaps in those moments, maybe if you find yourself thinking like, man, I do that a lot, make the kingdom of God about something else, maybe in those moments you are more about your freedoms than about the God who purchased your own freedom and the freedom of your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Remember that Christ secured the salvation of our brothers and sisters in Christ and pray that His intentions for His people would be our intentions for His people. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you're investigating Christianity, you're trying to check it out, and you know that there have been Christians maybe who have made the kingdom of God or this Jesus about those particular things, I hope that you too can be gracious. You know, we are sinners as well. Sometimes we don't always get things right, as is clear, right? There are the strong that still need to be rebuked, and so we're rebuking the strong right now, and so Paul is doing the same. But friends, I hope you see that Christ gave so much to secure freedom for sinners, And as you come to know Christ, yes, you will come to know sinners because that's who Christ saves. Praise the Lord for that. And you are one of them. But you do slowly come to know more and more the grace and the peace and the love that is in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. You can come to know that now if you turn from your sin and believe on him. And friends, you will be saved. The second thing, remember Christ is our example and his glory our aim. Remember, Christ is our example and His glory our aim. Now here we can look at last week's pass, or sorry, next week's passage a little bit. Look at 15.2. He says there, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, right? He's telling us what we are to do. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, right? He grounds, he gives the reason for why we should do what we do in Jesus and what he has done. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, really briefly, what is he talking about here? Or in general, he's just quoting from Psalm 69, and he's saying that the reproaches that were upon God fell on me. And here, this is an application of Jesus as he goes towards the cross, as he pleases his Father, and then he serves those that he died for. Right? You get that idea of him bearing something. That's Jesus. He's bearing something. He's not pleasing himself but instead he's pleasing those that he loves. Friends, in the moment that we may be wrestling with judging our brother and sister in frustration or maybe lack of love towards the weak, we have to remember that Christ is our example. And we can go further than that, actually. Christ is not only our example in what he did for others, but in what he did, once again, for you. Christ saved you. Did you have different opinions than God? Yes, you did. And forget opinions. You were his rebel. You were hostile to God, Romans says. And he put your eternal and spiritual needs above his own rights as the Lord of glory. As Christ took on flesh. That's why we read Philippians chapter 2. He left his throne of glory, left his position of glory and the praise that he rightly deserved. And he humbled himself, becoming a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of that, friends, for your safety and security, your salvation in his blood. And with Christ as the Christian's example, we therefore are to, as Philippians 2 says, count others more significant than ourselves in humility. One author writes, given Christ gave up his rights for his people, surely 
we can be quiet about our own. But even still, being quiet is not the ultimate goal. That author knew that. It's being quiet, being ready and willing to give up all of our rights for a time for the sake of the gospel if the Lord calls us to. And we see this in the Apostle Paul's life. I want you to turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians. And he is our example, just as Christ is our example. He is our example so far he follows Jesus Christ. And you see so much in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. We're going to start from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. And you see just how much Paul is ready to shed in terms of his opinions and rights, all for the sake of the glory of Christ in the gospel. He says there, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, um, this is similar context here, talking about the weak, talking about the strong, you know, things like that. He says, for though I am free from all, that is free from all basically uh, rules, extra rules, opinions and things like that. He said, I have made, my ser- made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, what's the purpose? That I might win those under the law. He's free to take upon himself obligations, right? That he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he knows doesn't save. He knows it's not a mark of faithfulness, but yeah, he's just so eager to take it upon himself in order that he might win them. And then you look there in 21. Well, hey, that's the Jews. What about to the Gentiles? To, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And what's the reason? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see there? That's godliness. He's not going to turn up to these Jewish Christians or these Gentile Christians and think like, The kingdom of God is all about these laws like circumcision. It's like not even going to play into part of the conversation necessarily. The kingdom of God is not about freedom from eating and drinking. And to even make it about that, the center of of, uh, conversation, makes it really, makes the kingdom of God, at least in the ears of our hearers, about those particular things. His aim should be our aim, the glory of God and the gospel. His example, that is, Jesus should be our example. Third point here, third point. Third thing we are to do is we pursue the upbuild, mutual upbuilding. This brings us back to Paul's opening verse. Don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Once again, if you find yourself to be in a tricky situation, right in that moment where you think that someone, when you find out that someone's really wrestling in their conscience about doing something, let me encourage you to be quick to be quiet about your own opinions. Be quick to be quiet about your own opinions. Now, Paul's seeking to win the lost. Here, we're just seeking to build up our brother. Same concept. Be all things to all men. Be quick to just shove those things aside and then you focus on the big things. Be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. A lot of people take different positions because of what went on in the background, like the example that I gave about drinking and the abuse and things like that. Be quick to listen. Listen to your brothers. All of a sudden, brothers and sisters, it becomes so much more about positions. It becomes, therefore, about upbuilding and seeing them secure in Christ. Another thing here, be quick to lay down your rights in that very moment. Be quick to lay down your rights in that very moment. If you find it hard to refrain, let me encourage you to pray that you learn to love your brothers and sisters well. Now, this doesn't mean, I don't think when Paul says, right, don't ever do anything to make your brother stumble, he does, I don't think he means abstain from that thing for the rest of your life. I don't think he means that you are to refrain, abstain from that thing for the rest of your life. Though one certainly could. If you're in that context, it's not a, not a problem. You're just going to refrain from that. Could you do that thing in private? I think so. Could you do that thing in private with friends who have similar conviction? Yes. Just don't come out and flaunt your freedom. In my own experience, when I've dealt with uh, some, some of the weaker Christians and when I myself am weak, even though I know my own conscience tells me one thing, if I find out that my friend is doing it who's also a Christian, um, I typically am going to say, right, I, well, it would be good for me to acknowledge that I myself am weak. This is a matter of opinion. 
And just because you do it doesn't necessarily mean you're in sin. Now, we should think charitably towards one another and think that, yes, the weak, ideally, would be thinking those things about me. And even if they don't, hopefully they're going to come and talk to some of us here in the church, and then we can, at that particular time, take time to instruct and uh, encourage. Um, And in that moment, be quick to bond over what you have in common. Be quick to bond over what you have in common. I mean, if you think about it, there's so, much other, so many other things that you could fellowship over. And again, if you struggle to give those things up in that very moment, or and especially if you find yourself trying to convince someone to do something against their conscience, you'd better check yourself. You may think the kingdom of God, once again, is more about eating and drinking than you realize. To conclude, thank God for passages like this, because it gives me direction in how to interact and how to love. If we know each other well enough, which I hope we all strive to do, we will need to interact and love all sorts of different kinds of people. And for those with more sensitive consciences, our passage tells us, right, no matter what is at stake in these matters of opinion, don't cause your brother to stumble, but pursue mutual upbuilding. With Christ leading the way who gave up all of his rights in in order to save and serve us, we can have great confidence that we as His church can move towards this type of brotherly love all for the display of God's glory. Now, what we need to do is obey in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do indeed thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us instruction. We thank you that you lay out clearly how it is that we are to love one another in so many different passages, how we are to put others' concerns before our own even. In humility, we are to bear with one another. We're supposed to labor for mutual upbuilding and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you, too, that you have given us such a marvelous example. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ that we are indeed saved. Lord, we pray that you would conform our love to the love of Jesus Christ all the more. We pray, Lord, that First Baptist would be known for moving towards one another in love and that the relationships that Paul wanted to be happening in Romans, would the dynamics there would mark the dynamics of our church. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.